Open up your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 1. The book of Acts, chapter 1. I hope that everyone found the introduction message uh, helpful as it kind of prepares us to enter into a new book of the Bible. It's going to be an exciting book to go through, and uh, definitely there's much for us to glean from it. The book of Acts chapter 1, I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through verses 1 through 11, and then I'm going to draw your attention as part of my introduction to our pillars of truth. And uh, young ones in the church, I want to make sure you get a copy, okay? Little ones in the church, get a copy of the pillars of truth, because once we read the book of Acts, our text for today, I want you to go to page 177 with me as part of my introduction. All right, let's hear the word of the Lord. The book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Follow along as I read. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive, after his passion, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, But ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly, Toward heaven as he went up. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall also come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let us pray. Father God, we come now to seek and understand your word. We we are asking you, Lord, to prepare our hearts to receive what it is you want us to learn. And we ask you, O Heavenly Father, to, Father, send your spirit to teach us the truth, all of the implications that are contained here in this wonderful book that we are beginning today. We thank you for this glorious truths that we'll present, and I pray, O God, that you would strengthen our faith, and that you would, Lord, um, help us to see more clearly, more confidently, 
our high calling as your people in this present age. We bless you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, to begin, I'd like to draw your attention to, as I said, the pillars of truth here. And I want to look at page 177. This is the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed. I'm just going to read part of it just for the sake of time, but follow along as I read. Page 177, the Nicene Creed from the pillars of truth that should be in your pew. It says, or rather it confesses, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sets on the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. Beloved, have you ever stopped and considered if you were asked what are the most fundamental and important truths regarding the person of Jesus Christ and the Christian faith what would your list contain? Well, I think I could speak for most of us uh, when I say that the list would contain, of course, that Jesus was God. Amen? He was God of God. I think I speak for most of us when I say that Jesus was also man. That Jesus as God, he became incarnate and he took upon himself real humanity. So he was God and also man. One person with two natures. I think I would speak for most of us and I'd say on that list is the truth that in his humanity, he was willing to be obedient to the eternal covenant from eternity past to come and to die for his church and that he gave up his life in his humanity upon the cross and he died a penal substitutionary death. And I think I would speak for most of us that that list most certainly would include his glorious resurrection. Amen. And the reality that right now he sits at the right hand of God and he is interceding for all of those who he has granted faith unto. These are the cardinal, glorious truths of the Christian faith. These are the truths that all of us here throughout our Christian pilgrimage have come to accept, dwell upon, we hear, in fact, we've heard it in the liturgy of our church so far several times, some of these key cardinal truths of the Christian faith and the person and work of Jesus Christ. However, as I was studying this passage, it dawned on me that there's another fundamental and essential truth of the faith that while when I've heard it, I've assented to it, whenever I've heard it preach, I've assented to it, but at the same time, in my ascending to it as a Christian, I have also failed 
to properly pause, meditate upon it, and dwell upon it as it is meant to be in order that I more fully understand the person of Jesus Christ in his present state and how that present state gives to me, affords to me, affords to you much confidence and much comfort as one of his disciples still here on earth. That truth that I'm talking about is his ascension. Christ's glorious ascension, a fundamental and important truth of the Christian faith, a cardinal truth. In fact, the Puritan pastor and scholar William Plummer puts it in the inseparable equation of a right understanding of the exalted Christ. Many a Christian comes to his prayer closet and he prays to uh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And he prays and, he, and, he, and, he, and he, he affirms the truth that he knows that Christ is exalted in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God. But also, you cannot ever think about, William Plummer says, the exaltation, the exalted one, without the ascension. Plummer presents it in biblical format in three steps, the right understanding of Christ's exaltation. His resurrection was the first step. His ascension in the middle, that's the second step. And his glorious place of rule and reign at the right hand of God, that's the third step. And so it is a very important part of our understanding of who he is, what he has accomplished, and what that means to us. Today, beloved, in our text, we will be brought to appreciate this cardinal doctrine of the church, the ascension of the risen Savior. The title of my message, as you see in your sermon handout, or sermon outline, is Christ the Ascended One. Christ the Ascended One. Well, how do I propose we begin? Well, I, I think that you see it very naturally divides itself up into four sections or four uh, uh, clumps of Scripture that convey certain thoughts or themes. And that's just what I want to do. I want to allow the text just to kind of naturally present its outline and we follow that. And we begin, first of all, with this very simple introduction in verse number one, the introduction. The former treaties, the inspired writer Luke writes, the former treaties, referring to volume one, the book of Luke, have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to both do and to teach. Now, in our introduction class of Theophilus, I didn't expand on this much because I didn't want to take away my material from my sermon. But Theophilus, who is this guy? Well, we don't have a whole lot of detailed information about him. You can think of Theophilus while we know his name. We really don't know anything else about him. Uh, but we do see that it's very important to Luke, who has taken the time, met with eyewitnesses and recorded their accounts to faithfully record all of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, to hand it over to this guy named Theophilus. Theophilus could have been a friend of Luke, uh, could have just been an acquaintance, another brother, Christian brother, may not even known him that well, just knew that he was a real Christian, so forth and so on. But I think what lies for us in this introduction, just to initially get us started here, what lies for us 
behind this mysterious figure of Theophilus that we don't know a lot about is the reminder of the importance of the principle that Paul writes about over in 1 Corinthians, you have it in your sermon notes, chapter 12, verse 12, where he compares the church of Jesus Christ to a body. Each body has a certain function. Each body, no, no part of the body is more important than the next. In the book of Luke, we would say volume one of the book of Acts, right? As we said in our introduction, he's called the excellent, the great, or the, the excellent Theophilus. Here he, he loses the excellent part, right? He's just this average guy. But, but friends, every person in the body of Christ has a specific designed calling part of the body to do something. And here we see, we're reminded of that. This no-name guy, we know his name, but we don't know anything about him. He is entrusted with this accurate history of the early church. And guess what? Theophilus was faithful, wasn't he? This guy who may not have had a big name for himself, so forth and so on. He's known only here as Theophilus, and Luke as the excellent Theophilus. But here, Theophilus, whether he was the foot, well, I guess we could say he was the foot, right? Or he was the hand. He preserved and he kept safe these chronicles, these letters that Luke wrote, and he made sure they were faithfully dispersed throughout the church. So it reminds us, dear friends, whatever it is that Christ has given you to do at this season in your life, remember, it's not about the name. It's not about the title. It's about being faithful of what God's called you to do. So just a simple observation there about Theophilus in their introduction. But prior to moving on to verses 2 and 3, where we have a summary of the final days of Jesus Christ, let us just take a careful look here at verse number 1. What did Luke say was contained in his first volume, or you could say the former treaties? He said it contains of all that Jesus began, key word there, both to do and to teach. Jesus, from the very beginning of his earthly ministry, what did he do? He did things and he explained things. He did things and he taught things. And this shouldn't surprise us. Because this is how God chooses throughout all of his means and methods throughout redemptive history to function. He would do miraculous things. And then he would explain to the Israelites, this is what this means. And what Luke is doing, I believe here, inspired by the Spirit, is helping us to see that during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus was about doing things and also teaching things. This is what we love about the ministry of Jesus Christ. He wasn't sitting in the ivory tower just teaching everyone, looking down and teaching everything. You need to do this, you need to do this. No, our Lord got the cloth and got on his knees and he washed feet himself. He led by example. He did things, didn't he? And he also taught. What an example for us to remember that if our knowledge of Christ, if our knowledge of Scripture, if our knowledge of our theology is not impacting how we do things, we need to check ourselves, brothers and sisters, don't we? Jesus did and he taught. Well, I believe what Luke's doing here is he's getting real quickly this aspect that Jesus in his earthly session, his earthly ministry, he did and taught things because he's setting us up to get us to see that just because Jesus is now in heaven, now that he's ascending, he's in his heavenly session, he's still going to do things, and he's still going to teach things. He's just going to do them a little bit of a different way. Well, he goes on here. Jesus did these things, verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up. And now he's getting in here to the last days of Jesus Christ on earth. 
just as still part of getting into uh, the, the, the introduction of overall what's going on. Um, until the day in which he was taken up. After that, notice, he, Jesus, through the Holy Ghost, uh, authorized version has ghost. Many of your modern translations say spirit. Same thing. It's an old English way of talking about the spirit. That he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Well, what were Christ's commandments here that he was given them through the Holy Spirit after he was taken up? What were the orders that he had given his apostles whom he had chosen? Well, those orders or those commandments, we will see, are all fleshed out the remaining book of the book of Acts. We will see the apostles after the coming of the Holy Spirit, after the promise of the Father coming to them and indwelling them, we will see them living out the commandments and the orders of Christ. And so at this point, we're not going to exhaust all of that. We'll look at that and, and bring them up as it, as it goes, right? But notice here, and this is what I want to point out, especially to the young ones. Notice that Jesus, he gives us Holy Spirit and his orders to the apostles who he had chosen. Jesus selected these early men to do what every other man would have been absolutely frightful to do. And that is to execute. And when you see what he asked them to do, you would think to yourself, I, there's no way I'd be able to do that. He, checks, he picks these men to do virtually the impossible, the apostles. And we ought to be very familiar with the apostles. This isn't a veneration of the apostles. This isn't placing the apostles as peculiar saints who uh, should be prayed unto. That's what we mean when we say venerated. But we should know these men. These, these men are the, are the men who Christ initially gave his spirit to and commissioned and sent out to build his church. And we should know them. Every kid in here who's under the age of 18, I'm looking at you with you because we talked about this at, before church. If I gave you in your sermon notes the list of the apostles, and in this history book of Acts, we're going to see and learn much about these men and what Christ did through them when they were blessed with his spirit, how that they went out and they literally turned the world upside down. I want you to know their names. Young ones, memorize their names. And for anyone who's 18 or younger, if you remember the names as I've listed them on your sermon outline, Pastor Doug has a special reward for you, okay? And there's no time limit. If it takes you a week, two weeks, three weeks, that's fine. But you just come to me, and when you're ready to tell me that you've memorized all the apostles' names, then I'll give you the surprise, okay? And believe me, it's well worth it. It's well worth it. But Christ, he chooses these men. Um, we could go back into the Gospel of Luke, and we all know these were not... Uh, Pharisees. These were not men, great religious men. They were common men, but they were common men who were made great. Their testimony was made great by Christ through the power of his spirit. Well, he goes into verse three. What was he doing on his last days of ministry on the earth? Well, he was given commandments. We're going to see that later on in the epistle or the, 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 the book of Acts. And also we see here that he spent... Forty days after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And so Jesus on his last days on earth, he is teaching about the kingdom of God. And it was after his passion, when we read that word passion, that's simply talking about his cross work. 
and all of the humiliation that come with that. And so whenever we speak about the passion of Christ, we are talking about that great humiliation, the mocking, the rejection, the beating, the spitting upon, his sacrifice upon the cross. After that, he was raised from the death, Luke is recording. He spent a lot of time on this in chapter 24. And Christ was with them for 40 days. What was Christ doing? He was doing what Luke said he was doing in 24. He's explaining to them things about the kingdom of God. Isn't it interesting, as you see in your notes, that Jesus delayed his ascension? Why is he delaying it? Why wait 40 days? I mean, you know, come on, in their business, in the heavenly session that needs to be taken care of, you can get on to? Friends, we ought to take notice of that. Jesus took 40 days after his passion. We're seeing here that the resurrected and risen Lord didn't immediately return from heaven from whence he came, but rather he remained on earth. Now I want to present to you in your sermon notes three things that was tactfully and strategically intended by our Lord during his 40 days on earth. Why he delayed his ascension. You see it in your notes. The first one is that he gave his followers, this would provide an opportunity for his followers to have all reasonable proof of his humanity. You do know when Christ descended into the tomb, God the divine son didn't descend in the tomb, did he? He was always in heaven with God. This is the nature of Christ and his divinity. But what was in the tomb? His humanity, his human flesh. And so, Hannah, if I had an idea of how I'm going to prove to you that I raised from the dead, really me, Pastor Doug, you touch me, right? I'm here, I can eat food with you and I can laugh with you and we can talk. I would have to come to you in my humanity, wouldn't I? Back from the dead and me and you would have to spend time. And you might joke around and say, you'd be a little timid at first, but you'd say, Pastor Doug, can I just touch you? Sure, go ahead. And you would touch me. Pastor, Pastor Doug, can, can you take a drink of this water? Just, I mean, is this really you? Is this really a man who's come back from the dead? And so we know from Luke 24 that Jesus, during this 40 days, he's interacting with his disciples. And you remember doubting Thomas. And he comes to the apostle Tom, Thomas and he says, Thomas, it's me. Here, Thomas, take your finger. Put it in my side. You can touch my flesh. It's my humanity. Yes, it's been transfigured in, in a way. Yes, in a mysterious microbiological level, it's, it's been manipulated in some form to where I've come back from the dead, but it's still my humanity. Here, touch it. And so it gave reasonable proof that he had truly risen from the dead as a man. Christ gave, secondly, you see in your notes, it would have provided reasonable satisfaction about the reality of his resurrection. A little overlap there, right? Maybe that should have really been listed first, now that I'm preaching it. Uh, it gave proof of his resurrection. He's back again! But then it also reaffirms, secondly, his humanity. It's not just uh, uh, an apparition, uh, uh, a spirit. This is really Christ and his humanity. But thirdly, oh, when we think about the shepherd's heart, when we think about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, this is the real ringer, isn't it? This, this, this really is perhaps why he delayed his ascension for 40 days. Christ delayed his ascension in order that he might aid his disciples in the recovery 
of the shock that they would have been undergoing just having seen him crucified. I thought he was the Messiah, Peter saying to John and James, the inner three. I mean, I confessed one of the first confessions of the church that you are the living son of God. And he was killed upon the cross and put in a tomb. I thought he was going to restore the kingdom of Israel. We can't even imagine what was swirling around all the doubts, the fears, the questions, the wrestlings of their souls, of who they loved, who in so many ways was revealed to them as the Son of God. And it all appeared to be a sham. How could someone who wasn't the Son of God walk on water? How could someone who was not the Son of God raise someone from the dead, Lazarus? You can imagine the conflict that they would have been undergoing. But oh, before moving on in their great purpose, Christ doesn't rush his ascension. He does not rush it. He slows down and he spends 40 days with them. Calm down. I know, <laughs> I know you guys are all beside yourself right now. I know you're taking a lot in. But let me show you how all these things must be to fulfill the prophecies that were spoken of old and how they all pointed to me. Our blessed Lord, the compassion, the sympathy, the understanding to his frail apostles and church. He delays his ascension. Before moving on, it's important to appreciate what Christ was doing in all of this because before, as I said, thrusting them into the world to realize their real purpose, He sets aside these days to help prepare them and fortify them. Now think for a moment what we learned last week in our New Testament reading of the book of James. He does the same thing with us. You remember from James 1, verses 2 and 3, where James said, "'Consider it all joy, my brethren,' When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces something. So all of our trials, all of our testings, they're what? They're preparatory work for something greater the Lord has for us to do. We don't feel that way. We're in the middle of it. Oh, Lord, remove this from me. Lord, take this away from me. Oh, but when you see, as he was dealing with the apostles in the late ascension, all of this, seeing me die, all of this, unanswered questions, it's preparatory work for you to do something much greater. We see in verse 3 that one way in which he would have helped prepare the first band of disciples was to teach them pertaining things pertaining to the kingdom of God. You see that in verse 3? That's what he was doing. Now, inseparately connected to the kingdom of God teachings in Jewish theology was the accompaniment of some extraordinary outpouring of the Spirit. So when we read verse 3, and he began to speak to them concerning the things of the kingdom of God, they would have in their Jewish theology immediately thought, not just a glorious king on earth, even though they would have been thinking that, uh, they would have been Jesus, but they would have been thinking, this, something, something has to happen with the Spirit. Something has to be said, expected, happen, with the power of God's Spirit. And being assembled together with them, we see in verse 4, He commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, 
but wait for the promise of the Father. And then we get into verses 4 through 8, where now Jesus is giving them his final teachings. He commands them to wait in Jerusalem. Now, when I first saw that, I thought to myself, isn't it interesting why Jesus would ask them to wait in the epic center hotspot of persecution upon anyone that has anything to do with him? Do we really have to recount the timidness of Peter, right, in Jerusalem that day by a woman, right? But Jesus doesn't tell them, go to Galilee. Jesus doesn't tell them, go back to your hometown where it's safer and we can collect ourselves and, you know, we can get kind of shored up and reaffirmed in what we're going to do. He doesn't do that. I want you to stay in Jerusalem. But, 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 but. Why? But, but, but. You know, be fearful of doing that. But they obeyed him. And the reason they obeyed him is because he connected the teaching and the command with the promise of the Father. Look in your notes. Notice carefully, Jesus' final command of staying in Jerusalem, even though it's the hot spot of persecution where he was just murdered, where they definitely, if they stick their necks out, are going to receive persecution, Jesus' final command is connected to something very, very important to Old Testament prophecy, especially as it relates to the fulfillment of messianic and kingdom prophecies. Wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from hence. The disciples would have understood this prophecy and promise very well. And furthermore, they would have understood its eschatological implications, meaning they would have understood it's end time, end of age, end of the, the current situation implications. Uh-oh, something major is about to happen. Perhaps this is the time. Perhaps this is the time where Israel will be restored. But setting all of that so aside, it still begs the question that I asked, why can't that promise, whatever it is in great detail, this promise of the Father of the coming of the Holy Spirit, Beloved, why can't that happen in Galilee? Are we to believe that the Holy Spirit is limited to where He can and cannot do certain things? Uh, 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 is, is Jesus possibly implying here that there's spiritual boundaries and our spiritual territories that we aren't aware of, that somehow or another restricts operations of the Spirit of God? He can operate in Jerusalem, but not in Galilee. Well, the short answer to all those questions is absolutely no. <laughs> the Spirit of God's not bound by spiritual geographical boundaries, definitely not bound by earthly boundaries. You see, the disciples being Jewish, they would have understood something that we are perhaps not thinking of, which is significant. And it's this, that the role of the city of Jerusalem played in God throughout redemptive history, was unique because God used it many times to demonstrate He is a faithful God. It's interesting how God would use the city of Jerusalem almost like a measuring rod, as a standard stick or a plum, to, as a backdrop of when He says, I will do this, I will do that. It happens, just like He says. Now, one such Old Testament prophecy, you see in your notes, that they would have been very well acquainted with, that would have demonstrated in some way how God is using the city of Jerusalem 
in connection with his faithfulness, his promise keeping, would have been Joel chapter 2 verses 28 through 32. This particular Old Testament prophecy that they as Jews would have been familiar with in connection with the role that Jerusalem played is unique because it not only demonstrates how God used in the city of Jerusalem, it also is connected with what Jesus is talking about, the outpouring of the Spirit. Notice what it says. Joel prophesied, It shall come to pass that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great day, before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now, I'm well aware of the fact that there is many who say that the book of the prophecy there of Joel cannot be applied to the first century church, particularly the day of Pentecost, particularly events that occur in Jerusalem. But friends, and perhaps we'll come back to it sometime, uh, none of those texts in that prophecy demand a or warrant a future fulfillment. When you consider the context, as we did in our introduction to the book of Luke, of some of the things that shortly come after Luke records Acts, particularly 70 AD, they could very well be applied to this apocalyptic type language that Joel is using. Why did I bring this up? Because the disciples, when Jesus says, stay in Jerusalem, why in the world are we staying in Jerusalem? Because that promise of the Father that Joel prophesied about, that Isaiah prophesied about, that Micah prophesied about, all of that is about to happen. And you know, my disciples, that it has to happen here. Additionally, these disciples would have recalled how that the city of Jerusalem was instrumental in the prophecy of Daniel, which predicted the arrival of the Messiah or the Christ. I think I have it in your notes, Daniel 9.25, the Messiah, we know from the book of Daniel, appears after the rebuilding of the temple. This is the second temple period. We went through this in the book of uh, Jeremiah and Zechariah. You guys recall that. So Jesus, guess what? He arrives after the second temple was built. That's when he lived. But Daniel 9.26, in connection with the Jerusalem, the Messiah would also appear before Judgment come upon Jerusalem and Jerusalem was destroyed. And so now you see why 70 AD is an instrumental date in your overall understanding of redemptive history. Because guess what? Jesus did come before Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, just like Daniel said. Again, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, is connected in redemptive history, in prophecy, as sort of a a, a place marker For God doing certain things which validate his faithfulness. Still further, the apostle Matthew in his gospel, he cited Zechariah 9.9, recording how Jesus during his passion rode the donkey into where? Jerusalem. As saying this was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Now beloved, I know I'm focusing a lot about Jerusalem. While it may be nothing more than a mere piece of dirt, and that is all it is, 
no one can escape the conclusion that Jerusalem was specifically utilized by God to demonstrate he is faithful. When he foretold that something would happen, no matter if it was a blessing or a cursing, it happened. And oftentimes he utilized this ancient city as a measuring rod or standard to demonstrate to the nations that while men and kings and princes may change, I, God, never change. That was a significant role of the city of Jerusalem. And this is why I believe he's telling the disciples to stay there. Jesus rode in Jerusalem. Jesus' humanity died in Jerusalem. Jesus' humanity was raised to life in Jerusalem. And as we're going to learn today, his humanity ascended on high from Jerusalem. And it's only proper that the promised spirit that was foretold by the prophets would come where? To Jerusalem. Followed by preaching first where? In Jerusalem. That away, I'm driving all of this to home to say God's faithful and He's just. So in 70 AD, no one could look at God and say, God, why are you doing this to your people? Because God could reply, Oh, I warned. I pointed. I sent. I revealed and demonstrated the great glory of my Son. And then after that, I sent his prophets and his witnesses to go proclaim his goodness in power. And they still would not come home. They rejected him. That's why it had happened to Jerusalem. Having all this swirling around in their minds, it's no surprise what we see in verse 6. All this stuff, these, the Old Testament prophecies, the, 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 the about to happen fulfillment of the Spirit. In relationship to Jerusalem, where they're setting, when they therefore were come together, they asked the Lord, the resurrected Lord, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They want to know, don't they? Okay, when this promise of the Spirit that's so inseparably connected to the fulfillment of the Messianic and kingdom prophecies happens, is this finally when you're going to do it? We thought you were going to do it in your earthly ministry. Then you get on the cross and you die. When is this going to happen? It has to be here, right? Well, at this point, as you see in your notes, some commentators come down pretty hard on these early, excited, a little bit confused apostles. Calvin says, I, I kind of chuckled when I read it, he says, marvelous is their rudeness or elementariness. That when they had been diligently instructed by the space of three whole years, they betray no less ignorance than if they heard never a word. There are as many errors <laughs> in this question as there are words. Wow, that's pretty hard, you know? Well, thankfully, as you see, I think John Gill sheds a little bit better helpful light on it. Gill says, Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his discoursing with them, now this is helpful, isn't it? With them about the kingdom of God and ordering them to wait in Jerusalem for something extraordinary it would have, wouldn't it? He says it would have revived their hopes and it would have emboldened them to ask the question. When you see in that light, it does make sense why they're, they're not, you know, like just forgetting everything in the school of Jesus Christ they learned being in his earthly ministry. No, I think if I was there being an early, you know, Jewish guy and, and I watched Jesus and believed he was saying, he's teaching us about the kingdom of God and he's saying any day now the spirit's about to be poured out just like Joel said it would and Isaiah said it would and people are going to come to me all nations I'd be like this is it so Lord is this when, it's going, when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel notice their limited focus of the kingdom it's to Israel ethnic Jews 
Well, you see Jesus' answer. I think his answer at first glance, Jesus comes across a little bit short, a, a little bit dismissive. But we know that's not the case. It's, but it is almost as if he's saying when you first read it, you know, guys, that's really none of your business. In fact, don't even concern yourself with such questions. Well, such interpretation would only be partially accurate. He is telling them not to concern themselves with it. But Jesus isn't being dismissive in the sense that it's none of their concerns. He's not trying to apply that to them. But recall that his 40 days of resurrection discipleship training is preparing them for something bigger, something more cosmic, something much larger. It's not concerned with just little kingdom of ethnic Israel and Jews. I think this comes out in verse 7. Look at verse 7 when he says, Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Their question in verse 6 is answered in a way that they weren't quite expecting. Oh yes, Jesus grants to them that the Old Testament prophecy of His Spirit is about to occur any day now. But as you see in your notes, He's warning them to get the bigger picture. He's wanting them to get the implications of what's about to occur. The prophet Isaiah prophesied in uh, chapter 42, verse 6, that the Christ, the Messiah, would be a light to the people around the world, a universal light. And Jesus, basically, in his answer, is telling them in verses 6 and 7, or 7 and 8, rather, you're going to fulfill that promise. You're going to fulfill that prophecy. He's going to do it through them with His power of His Spirit. But you see, His answers helping them to see that we as the apostles, we as the church, we're a little bit more involved in all of this than what we initially thought. We thought that He was just going to show up in glory, snap His fingers, boys are going to obey, and things are going to ship up and shape out, and everything was going to be in place, right? Isaiah later on in 49.6 prophesies that the Messiah would bring salvation to the very ends of the earth. And here Jesus is telling them in a nutshell... This is going to be accomplished through your witness of me. The prophet Micah. Again, there's these theological interpretations of Old Testament prophecies all throughout the book of Acts. And the prophet Micah prophesied in 5.4 that the Messiah would have a worldwide impact. And Jesus is revealing to them in his answer, you are the ones that are going to bring this to pass. Well, after dropping what I would call the prophecy bomb, on them here in these verses you're going to get the, 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 the gift of the spirit the power of the spirit this, this fulfillment of the messianic kingdom age and you're going to be witnesses unto me first in Jerusalem in Judea in Samaria and other parts of the earth uh oh I thought it was just going to be restoring the kingdom of Israel he's, he's implying here that we're going to be instrumental and what Isaiah was talking about? He drops this big prophecy bomb upon him. He goes on to now fulfill prophecy before their very eyes in his glorious ascension. He as the Messiah, the Christ, has accomplished during his earthly session all that he was intended to do. And now, verses 9-11, through 11, he enters into his heavenly session well, he, where he will be seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will send forth his Spirit, and through these apostles, they execute the command he gave them in verse 8 perfectly. Perfectly. Sure, they're still men. 
sure, we're going to see some things where they fall down, they get back up. Peter and Paul have some differences, so forth and so on. But when the Spirit of Christ comes, these apostles, they stay on that mission. So let's spend the remainder of our time here looking at verses 9 and 11. Pondering the great ascension of the ascended one. He's ended his earthly mission. He's given them this grand command and order and promise that the Spirit's about to come. And now he leaves them in verses 9 and 11. When he had spoken these things, while they beheld, watching, looking at him, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Over in 1 Timothy, you know this verse perhaps, Paul says that he was received up into glory. And indeed, that's the picture we kind of get here. He's finished everything. He has completed his earthly task and he's received up into glory. And after laying at the apostles' feet, the comforting assurance that the promised spirit was soon to come and that they afterwards were going to go out and do the work that he had given them to do, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, Christ ascends back to where he had come from. And he said he would. He prayed this many times to the Father. He wanted to come back to them in John 17 to the glory that he once knew. Look at verse 9. It really describes for us in some detail, how the resurrected humanity of Jesus in some supernatural way is elevated upward into the sky here called heaven. The Jews had an understanding of the heavens. They used it in three ways. Gil teaches us. They had this, the heavens you see right here in the clouds. And then there was the heaven in the stars that you see at night, the galaxy. But then there was the heaven of heavens, which was where Christ was ascending to and setting with the Father and reigning. So we get this picture that his humanity has risen from the dead, that he is a person in front of them, and somehow or another, in a mysterious way, admittedly, in a supernatural phenomenon, he is, his body begins to elevate upwards, right? And, and we see that it's doing it for quite a while. It's not like it was like, poof. No, we're getting the picture. It's elevating for quite a while. Kind of like uh, what happens when you're kids, you get home and, and dads, you love this. You pay $10 for the helium balloon, right? That, that they just had to have at the, at the party or whatever, at the, at the fair. And then you get home and they get out of the car and what's the first thing that happens? Let go of the $10 balloon, right? Yeah. And, and what's everybody do when that happens? Everybody kind of stops. Is that, is that it? Is that it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. No, no, that's a bird. And you watch it until it goes away. That is exactly the picture that we're seeing, we're seeing here. Jesus' humanity is taken up into a cloud. Christ ascended not figuratively. This isn't figurative talk. His humanity truly elevated and went up and was received until it could be no, seen no more. This is not a spiritual ascension. It is a real physical bodily ascension. His disciples saw him ascend, beloved, to heaven as clearly as they saw his humanity upon the cross of Calvary. Now, we don't have a description of the cloud, but we're informed by the two witnesses here, which most commentators say they were witnesses who were angels manifested as men. So they appeared to be men dressed in white, the significance of them being two instead of one goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. And the Bible's um, you know, importance upon anything that's truthful has to be collaborated by two witnesses. 
So most people affirm this is the two witnesses here. Some will speculate. I, you can't be dogmatic about it, but these are going to be the same two witnesses that are in uh, this age, toward the end of this age, that are going to be either um, Elijah uh, or John. Um, they, 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 they say that some of these guys could be these two witnesses, but that's just you know something interesting to think about. But they say that he's going to come again in like manner. Now, why is that significant? Well, they are telling us that in his ascension, his humanity, Jesus being taken up, that he's going to come again in like manner. So whatever anyone ever tries to convince you about Jesus' second coming, and there is a school of thought in Christianity, for the most part are pretty orthodox. They will try to convince you that all of this has already been fulfilled. But the problem with that is that they speak of it rather figuratively. Um, and there, there, there is no collaborated, uh, agreed-upon witness of the church that Jesus has bodily came back in his humanity a second time. So be watchful of that. Anybody claiming Jesus has come back, he has to come back in this way. He's going to appear in his resurrected humanity, which we know from John 20, 27, will bear the marks of his crucifixion, right? We will see his pierced hands. We will see the wound in his side. And it's important that we understand, as I said in the hymn, and also we read in the Nicene Creed, it was his human nature that ascended. You ever thought about that? That was his human nature. When we speak of Christ ascending here, we speak of his human body and his human soul. Because his divine nature fulfills all things. His divine nature as God isn't constrained to the earthly materialistic creation. And we can comprehend that. Essentially, his divine nature as God fills all space. And so it was only important to demonstrate that his humanity is what rose from the dead and his humanity what was in need of to be ascended. Now here's where it gets interesting. Here's where I stopped and when I got to this point in my study, I thought, this is what adds to our full understanding of the state of Christ now in his resurrected humanity. And I can't do it any other way than just read again William Plummer. You have it in your notes. Follow along. The effect of this exaltation on the human nature of Christ was not, Plummer says, to annihilate it, to do away with it, not to alter it so that it ceased to be human nature. But notice, friends, it was intended to glorify His human nature, to crown that human nature with glory and honor. He goes on to say, when Saul of Tarsus saw the glorified, ascended Christ soon after His ascension, you remember the scene. Christ shone with luster above the brightness of even the sun and that vision produced blindness, didn't it? This is our Christ, friends. This was, a, this was miraculously healed later on. We know that, right? But then what happened about 60 years later? There was another vision of the ascended Christ, the glorified Christ, your Christ. The vision that John saw made John fall at his feet as a dead man. You remember that? Plummer goes on to say, 
the ordinary mode of explaining this wonderful change in the appearance of Christ, he's talking about his humanity, is that while he was here on earth in his humanity, his glory was veiled. You remember Peter, John, and James was there, the inner three at the Mount of Transfiguration. Plummer says at the Transfiguration, that veil temporarily was taken away. And his raiment became as white and glittering in heaven. Oh, in heaven, where Christ is right now, in all of his glory, both God and both man, there is no veil, no covering. And his glory of who he is as the second person in the Trinity outshines everything else that could possibly be created. Only he possesses that glory and it shines forth unveiled. That's what Paul got to see. And that's what broke Paul in two. And made Paul see, <laughs> I'm dust. Oh Lord, what did Paul say when he saw that? Lord, what would you have me to do? Brothers and sisters, what else would you say? When Christ in all of his glory, the ascended one, appears unveiled. And that's how he's going to come the second time. When he comes that second triumphal time to judge all things and put an end to this age, he won't be in the form of a baby. He will be in the form of this ascended glorious one. And oh, only if you belong to him in faith, you're longing to see that. Because if you're not belonging to him by faith, if he is not as John Fawcett, who AJ was quoted much last week, thank you brother for bringing that to our attention. If he's not precious to you, you will see that a glorious ascended Christ coming and it will strike fear in you because you know it will be too late. So today's the day of salvation. As we're sitting here, we're hearing of the ascended Christ and his work and what he did in the earthly session and what he's still doing in the heavenly session. It is an opportunity to say, Christ, I believe in you. I do trust by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit that who you say you, you are, what your apostles proclaim you did. I believe that. I assent to your lordship in my life. I repent of everything that I've done. I want to be one of your sons and one of your daughters. This puts a, I think, a glorious, different, illuminated perspective upon the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, he rose from the dead. Oh, but when he ascended, beloved, in his glory, he assumed to himself that which he truly is. And that's who we serve. That's who we serve. You see it in your sermon notes. By this, there was more Old Testament prophecy fulfilled. Scholars point to several Old Testament prophecies that require the ascension of our Lord. You see it listed there. And then, of course, in addition to these, Jesus himself, as I mentioned, often foretold of his own ascension. He said, did he not, in John 14, 28, I go unto the Father. Later on in the Gospel of John, he said again, I go my way to him that has sent me. So we shouldn't be surprised by this ascension. But coming to a close of the message, what does this ascension mean to us as the church? I'll make it brief. You've been patient. First of all, His ascension being taken up, not getting halfway and falling back down. <laughs> I mean, what a disaster, right? And then appearing later to Paul, as I just described to John, it reminds us that it's finished. Really, you see in your notes, really, it's finished. I don't care 
how much the world goes to hell in a handbasket or who gets, it's finished. The ascended one is ruling and reigning right now. There is not one thing happening that he does not give his stamp of approval or decree upon. It's all going to work out, we know, for the good of those who love him. Now, like we said before, going back to James 1, going back to the early apostles, there's a theology of suffering. And a lot of times when you're inside or in the middle of the suffering, you don't realize how this is going to work out for the good of you. But who are you going to trust? Your feelings or the ascended one? So it's finished, really, friends. It's finished. Jesus doesn't have to put a second chapter to how he's going to save you. He's finished it on the cross. It's through faith alone and his finished work alone. Amen? Can I get amen? It's finished. Right? Believe that. Believe in the ascended one. That it's, a, that it's finished. His ascension. Demonstrate that, that for us as his church. The ascension means to us, guess what? That there's present work to be done. Oh, Pastor Dell, you got to start talking about work again. I'm sorry. The Bible talks a lot about work. It talks not only about teaching, but as we saw, it talks about doing. Uh, you will know them that not only know my commandments, but you will know those who do my commandments. And so we have a mission as the church of Jesus Christ, verse 8. We still have a lot of work to do. And that looks differently, of course, in different spheres of our lives. But we all united, whether you're a husband, whether you're a wife, whether you're a mother, whether you're a father, a brother or a sister, a parent or a child, we are united in this one mission, doing that one work. Amen? Because he hasn't come back again the second time. It means to us, the glorious realization that we all know that is true within us, that His Spirit has been given. We're going to get to that next week um, when the Spirit is poured out and we experience, it, we experience that. Without the ascension and the going away of Christ, the fulfillment of the promise that He's talking about today in verses 5 and 6 wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have needed to happen because He would have been here. But this is His wisdom. This is His chosen way given us his spirit to carry forward the work he has given us. And lastly, the ascended Christ, as in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, draws out most preciously, makes the significance of the ascension of Jesus Christ precious in this way. It says, quote, We have our own flesh in heaven. This is what the hymn was pointing out. His humanity is in heaven. And this is a guarantee, the catechism goes on to say, that Christ, our head, he will take us, his members, to himself in this heavenly realm. It's the result of the ascension that provides us believers with peace about what lies beyond this life. Me and my wife this morning, you can blame her, she brought it up. Um, She brought up the fact that we're not spring chickens anymore, you know? I'm not going to say ages because I've been married long enough to know you can't do that. But the reality is, is, you know, our most healthiest years are behind us, right? Now, I told her, babe, it's a matter of perspective. The best years could still lie ahead, right? So we can't say our best years are behind us. The best years lie ahead, amen? But the best health, we just all know, right? It doesn't lie ahead. It's just a reality. Um, And we were reflecting on this and, and just talking about it. And uh, we come to this point of closing in the message, and it's so true, isn't it, beloved? The ascended Christ being where he is, revealing himself as he did, giving us further understanding of who he is and what he has accomplished and, and how he revealed himself to Paul and to John and how he has promised. 
that he will prepare for us a place and how our humanity, Abby, will be in the presence of him, the God-man. I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't have to answer every qualm of the skeptic who can't understand his own unique makeup as a person who has a body and a soul and he can't even answer that question. I don't have to answer the question. All I know is I have the hope within that there is an ascended Christ, a Savior, who has died for me. His Spirit has made known to me that He is that precious one. And that this life, it is not all that we have, friends. We have a heavenly hope. We have a heavenly home. We have a heavenly Savior who's waiting for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. O Father of glory, a Father of faithfulness, you demonstrate over and over again, Lord, that you keep your word. And God, as we continue on in this record of what your spirit has done in and through your church, we will be reminded again and again that, Father, you keep your promises. Keep lively within us this hope that we have of Christ's promise that as he ascended, he will also when all of his heavenly work is completed in the salvation of all of those who he died for upon the cross, when they are brought into his family, the very last one, he will rise up out of his seat. He will come back in his full personhood, both man and God, and he will give to us the rest that our weary souls so desperately long for. But, O Father, I pray, as we did in our communion time, as we travel on this side of glory, that you would instill in us this victorious, hopeful understanding of the power of the kingdom and the spirit through the witness of Jesus Christ and his gospel, that Lord, come all the trials that may, Lord, it will never be defeated. Your church, the gates of hell, shall never prevail against your church. Help us, God, we pray, no matter what trials, no matter what persecutions that may come upon us or the children in this church or their future generations, help us to stand fast in the truth of the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Help us to follow the pattern and example of the boldness of these early apostles whom you chose. We bless you and we thank you and we give you all of the glory. Amen.